Well, good morning, friends. It's nice to see everybody here today. You know, a lot of people actually on my way up here asked me, what's the sermon actually about? So we'll get into that in just a second. Um, I've been studying uh, James with uh, some of our youth, and some of the things coming out of James have really just struck a chord with me, and I wanted to share those with you today. So before we get started, let me just pray for us briefly, for me. <laughs> uh, dear Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity that you've given us to be here today especially in these uncertain times with all these things going on all over the U.S., Lord. Uh, you've still made provision for us to be here together, uh, fellowshipping in person, uh, singing, and learning, Lord. I pray that um, you'd guide my words and that you'd prepare uh, everyone's hearts to hear. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. So, one of the things that I noticed in James is he talks a lot about words, right? Uh, in fact, he tells, us, he tells us that if a person could tame their tongue, they would be perfect. That, that's the standard, right? Only a perfect person could control their tongue. Now, I think I usually do pretty well. Maybe you do too. Maybe we only slip up here and there. Not a big deal, right? Not a big deal. But to never speak a harsh word, to never speak a false word. Ignore everything else. That alone requires perfection. The person that has reached that level of control has reached perfection, but I think there's a bit more to the story there. So let's go ahead and take a look at that today. So first of all, the tongue is dangerous. And it's dangerous because it is the instrument by which we wield one of man's most powerful weapons. That's words. Have you ever heard that the pen is mightier than the sword? It's not because people are out there flinging pens, right? It's, it's because words are truly powerful. They can be dangerous. And there's a reason for that. God exercised his own magnificent power in creation through three words. Let there be. Let there be light. Let there be a vault between the waters. Let the water be gathered and let dry ground appear. God has routinely exercised his power through his word and through his promises. Now, man, made in the image of God, also has some power that he can exercise through his words. Now, before anyone starts to go to a weird place, like I can create with my word or something, let me ground this for you a little bit. Let me qualify it. In Scripture, there are a couple of really good examples of the power that man wields through his words. Jesus, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, had this to say in Matthew 5, 21 to 22. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is, an, is answerable to the court. 
And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, raka in Aramaic is a, it's a contemptuous term. And it goes along with the theme of hating your brother and speaking harshly to him. But think about that. The person that speaks to their brother in such a way commits murder. We're all really familiar with that concept. We've heard it a million times, but really think about that. Jesus says this in three different ways. He says that this person will be subject to judgment. They'll be answerable to the court. And ultimately, this person is in danger of the fire of hell. Consider that your words have the power to slay your brother in such a way that were you standing in your own righteousness, you would be condemned to hell. Consider that. Our words have a lot of power. But we also see that the inverse is true. Our words can also bring strength to our brothers. Uh, Paul's us in, Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, 29, that we should speak what is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Our words can build our brothers up and they can bring grace to them. Now, when I thought about that, uh, two questions immediately sprang to mind. How can my words build up my brother? And how can they bring my brother grace? Well, first of all, what am I doing right here, right now? My goal is to use my words to teach. My goal is to use my words to build up my brothers and sisters in Christ. For all of us to grow in obedience to Jesus for his pleasure. Surely that's one example, right? But another would be encouragement in general. Now, I want to be clear on what encouragement is and what it is not. Um, telling somebody, oh, I love your hair today, I love what you've done with it, that's not encouragement. Telling someone, oh, I love your watch, that's really neat, it must have cost a lot of money, not encouragement. Um, compliment, at best, maybe just flattery, but not encouragement. Um, telling, telling your brother that's down in the dumps, hey, you know, I know this didn't go well for you, but maybe next time it'll be all right. It's not that either. That's just trying to make somebody feel better. Encouragement isn't any of those things. Encouragement is building courage in your brother. Encouragement. Is your brother struggling? You can use your words to build him up, to pick him back up and give him the strength to continue running his race. You can use your words to remind your brother of the amazing gifts that he's been given in Christ. And not only of that, you can remind your brother of the confident expectation that we have, all of us, as Christians. The imminent return of our King and his coming glory. These are the kind of words that certainly would bring strength to a brother, encourage him to keep going, right? 
but I think that the greatest and most powerful words that we could ever speak to our brother would be the gospel. Paul tells us in Romans 1, 16 and 17, that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now I'll say, I think Paul knew something about the power of the gospel. Remember, Paul was a zealous Jew, a persecutor of the church, perhaps one of the worst of his day. He locked up women and children in prison. But um, one of the most moving passages in scripture that I can recall, every time I read it, it just, it kind of grabs me, is of Stephen making his defense uh, rebuking his brothers who had rejected the Messiah and giving the defense for his faith. And Paul, the persecutor, was there. He was holding the Jews' coats as they dragged Stephen out and stoned him to death. Paul knew something about the power of the gospel. Can you imagine what it must have felt for Paul? That sudden realization that not only was he not serving the God he claimed, but he was actively opposed to him. Paul was a good Jew. He was a Pharisee. He knew what happens to God's enemies. He knew what they receive. They receive torment. Paul knew that. But what Paul received wasn't torment. He received mercy. He was crushed in his opposition to God, but he was built back up on the foundation of the gospel. And he knew what awaited for him when he reached that finish line. It was that imperishable wreath he talked about. That crown of victory, eternal life. He knew what awaited him. He was built back up in the gospel. Now, again, I need to qualify some things. I don't think that these words are magical. The gospel has power. Our words can have power. But it's not, it's not that you say them in a certain, a certain order, at a certain cadence, and bam, your brother's dead. Or bam, your brother's brought to life. It's not about that. But words are the tools by which our power is exerted, by which God has exerted his power. That's his choice. So, let's finally come around to James. Um, listen, please, as I read James 3, uh, verses 3 to 8 here. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal, or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, 
a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So I think that James uses some fantastic imagery in that brief section. And it was kind of difficult to choose. Oh, what's my favorite? These are all so good. Um, but I want to zoom in on one in particular. Imagine, if you will, standing right before you is a horse. Now, I would say you're looking him eye to eye, but that's kind of a big assumption with horses. I mean, these things are gigantic. They're powerful. I mean, these are serious animals. Most of them. Most of them are gigantic, actually. So shortly after marrying my wife, Rebecca, uh, I was visiting some of her family on her mother's side. Uh, this is in rural Kansas. Don't let anybody tell you different. It's an amazing place. It's phenomenal. But um, we were there, and there was a horse. Uh, I say horse. It was maybe like a, like a pony or, or something like that. It was a really small horse. I mean, he's like this big, okay? Tiny horse. And um, some of the kids were riding this horse, and I just thought that was the coolest thing. And they said, you know what? You should ride the horse. I'm like, that's ridiculous. If I get on this horse, my feet will literally be dragging in the dirt as he carries me around, right? So I got on the horse, right? <laughs> and my feet were dragging in the ground. But the second I got on this horse, I realized this little beast is no joke. This tiny horse is pure muscle. If we were to fight, he might demolish me. I would not want to take a kick from the tiny horse, right? But as strong as this tiny horse was carrying me about, I'm not even sure he realized I was there, if I'm going to be honest with you. But as strong as he was, he was being led by a small rope attached to the halter on his head. This mighty, tiny beast was controlled with just a small rope. And even the biggest horses, the most powerful beasts, are controlled with nothing but a bit in their mouths. And in the same way that this bit controls the horse, your tongue can lead you into a lot of trouble. Jesus tells us, Matthew 15, 11, that it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles a man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. Now, there's a little more context there that we're not going to get into right now, but what I will say is that your tongue is the means by which you can be defiled in sin. And not only that, but it seems to have a mind of its own. Almost like a case of the tail wagging the dog, if you can believe that. But we've all had experiences where we just say something and we didn't even have a chance to think about it. It's already out there and people are already mad. 
I didn't even have a chance to realize this is a terrible thing to say until it was already out of my mouth. I'm sure that's happened with all of you. I hope it has, it's not just me. <laughs> but, but why? Why is controlling the tongue so difficult? Well, remember what we just read, what James said. No human being can tame the tongue. If you can't tame your tongue, are you doomed to a life of slaying your brother in defilement? No. No, we all know that. No, of course not. But there is another way. Only a perfect man can control his tongue. So instead, let's look at the source of the problem. In Luke 6.45, Jesus tells us, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So in this passage, Jesus had just finished with that phrase that we're all so familiar with. Each tree is known by its fruit. Again, we're all so familiar with these things, but remember, each tree is recognized by its fruit. This last statement is a practical application of that concept. A good tree bears good fruit, just like a good man brings good treasure from his heart. A bad tree bears bad fruit, just like an evil man brings evil from his heart. And what is the method by which these things are brought from their hearts? It's the tongue. It's your mouth, the things that you utter. Whatever is in your heart, your tongue will expose. And that's kind of a scary thought, right? If you're harboring anger in your heart, your tongue will lash out in anger. If you're harboring bitterness and resentment, your tongue will drip with poison. Whatever is in your heart, your tongue will expose you. Your tongue will make it known to the world. There's no hiding it. So if you are not a perfect man, and you're not able to control your tongue, what can you do? You can fill your heart with good. Okay. So, that naturally raises a question. What is your heart filled with? If you're a Christian, then your heart should be filled with the love of God. Through the gospel, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He rose again and he brings us with him into new life. And we Christians have a changed heart. Um, I hear this all the time from people. Don't ever let anyone say that you have an evil, wicked heart. And that your desire is for evil continually. 
you have a new heart. You have been reborn. Remember that. But you might say, yeah, sure, Jeff, that's great and all, but I still sin. I still say things that I don't want to say. Okay, that's fair. What is your heart filled with then? What are you consuming? What are you allowing to get a foothold in your heart? What are you pondering in your mind? What you put into your heart matters. Have you ever heard of the concept garbage in, garbage out? I was taking a programming class in college. Um, I'm not a programmer, so that didn't go great. But that being said, um, I was taking a programming class, and I had written a program that did basic math. That's really all it did. No big deal, right? You'd run the program. It asks you a few questions. You punch in a few numbers, and bam, there's the answer. It's a glorified calculator. And it did just fine with numbers. But if you put a letter in as one of the questions, it would spit out a bunch of garbage on your screen. Obviously not the correct answer. But I gave it a garbage input. It's supposed to have numbers, and I gave it letters, and it spit out garbage. Your heart, in some ways, is like that program. If you give your heart a garbage input, I assure you, you will get a garbage output. Except, in this case, it's not just junk on your screen. It's hateful sins, lies, jealousy, all that's skating right past your teeth to your brother. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on what qualifies as a garbage input. Um, I'd rather focus on the one thing that I think is guaranteed to fill your heart with love. I think this is what we should really be focusing on here. Uh, John 15, 13 says, Greater love hath no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now those are the words of Jesus to his disciples before he went to the cross. Jesus has made the ultimate display of his love for you. I'm not talking about the congregation, I'm not talking about the church as a whole, I'm talking about you, the individual. Jesus has made the greatest display of love that one can make for another individual. He's made that display for you. You're made friends with Christ because he loved you. And this is what I want you to dwell on. I want you to dwell on the fact that Jesus gave his life for you. Dwell on the gospel. This isn't something that you can give some kind of mental assent to and say, yeah, sure, that happened, I agree. That's not enough. This is something that you need to ponder. This is something that you need to meditate on. How much time have we spent pondering other things? How much time have I spent pondering any number of things? Maybe working on my car, or maybe, uh, who knows, what's on TV? How much time have you spent pondering that? 
and filling your heart with whatever's there as opposed to filling your heart with the love of God and pondering the gospel and what he has done for you. If you dwell on Christ and his love for you, you will be hard-pressed to not be filled with love. So take 15 minutes after the service. Ask yourself, what has Jesus done for me? Now, as I was asking that question of, uh, to myself earlier, um, it occurred to me that perhaps I could come across in a, a negative way for some people. Well, what has he done for me anyway? Right? Think about it. What has Jesus done for you? Take the time and ponder that and see, see what happens in your heart. And this is where I would say that the trick isn't keeping your mouth shut. The trick isn't controlling your tongue by force of will. The trick is filling your heart with love. Now, there's one thing I want to say in regards to this. Now, before anybody goes there, what happens if somebody says something to you that hurts you? Uh, perhaps it, uh, it makes you feel unloved, something really unpleasant. Does that mean that it was an evil thing, dredged up from the evil of their heart? No, not necessarily. This message is for you to apply to your own heart. This is not for you to apply to somebody else's heart to judge somebody else's condition. My concern is for you to use your words in love. Only the Lord knows what's in a man's heart. And I'm thankful to say that none of you are the Lord. (laughs) Me neither, so it's okay. (laughs) So, focus, what is slipping past your teeth? What are you saying? What is in your heart? Is it love or is it poison? And I will say that not all painful words are bad. Uh, Proverbs 26.7 tells us, faithful are the wounds of a friend. That friend may be speaking a painful word to you in love because they love you. That wound won't kill you, it will heal you. Sometimes love is painful, but it seeks what is best, not what is most comfortable. So as you're considering this, apply it to yourself first. Okay. Now, this all assumes one really big point. It assumes that you are a Christian and that you have a new heart. It assumes that you have accepted the gospel, that you have bent the knee to Jesus, and that you follow him. But what if you haven't? What if you aren't a Christian? What can you do? Well, I'll say this. If you haven't bent the knee to Christ, now is the time. Now is the time that you can be filled with the love of Christ, that you can control what you say. And not only that, we're promised life now, 
and we're promised life into eternity. So don't delay. Through his death on the cross, he made it possible for us to be at peace with God. And not just at peace, but also friends. So if you believe in his death and resurrection, follow him, he will bring you to life right now and into eternity with him. So how? How do we love our brother when the tongue has a mind of its own? How can we possibly control it? You can't until you reach perfection. So instead, instead I say, fill your heart with the love of God through the gospel and allow the tongue to reveal what is there, your love. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Uh, dear Lord, thank you so much again for this opportunity. Uh, Lord, if I have spoken in error, I pray that you would correct it. And Lord, if um, there's anyone out there that has not accepted your message, that has not bent the knee, Lord, I pray, I pray that you would bring them to you. And Lord, I pray that you would bring them to life. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to be filled with your love and allow that to spill out of our mouths. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.